Oh boy. Welcome to episode 10. Yeah, welcome. Oh my gosh. We had a little break there as we were working on the rest of this episode. This is the second part of a two-parter. Yeah, we had to do a little more in-depth research than for some of the previous episodes. Yeah. What are you reading these days? Um, I'm about halfway through a short story collection called A Lucky Man hmm. by James Brinkley. Cool. It's interesting. It's They're sort of slice of life stories, but they're a little sad. I don't know. It feels very, feels very this time of year. Sure. Kind of like low energy. Yeah. 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 What about you? The year. Uh, well, I'm halfway through our buddy reed oh okay uh, the daughter of dr moreau i finished it i know you raced through it i'm like wait <laughs> wait i didn't catch up so that's that's my homework i don't um, know how you put it down <laughs> yeah i just i read it before bed and i get oh. a couple chapters and, yeah. then, and then go to sleep but i'm also in the middle of another book by the same author gods of jade and shadow and they're both both very good so. yeah i like her stuff a lot yeah a twist on the gothic novel different setting yeah yeah, and Gods of Jade and Shadow is a sort of a fairy tale. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's really fun. Because the other one that you and I have both read of hers is Mexican Gothic. Yes. Which also, was also very phenomenal. Yes. Moody. Yeah. All right. Okay, well, shall we jump in? Let's do it. Hi, everyone. I'm Tibby, and I'm a librarian, parent, unschooler, and a reader. I'm Alexis, and I'm an educator and a reader. And you're listening to the At Home Librarian Podcast, a podcast where we examine what it means to become a reader, demystify how that happens, explore beyond the five most famous kids' books, and dive into the works of children's book artists, authors, and scholars. Along the way, we'll recommend books for you to share with the children in your life, help you diversify their bookshelves, and hopefully reassure you that whatever your kid loves reading is okay. There is so much good stuff when it comes to children's books. Okay, well, in our previous episode, we had talked about John Newberry and how he kickstarted the children's publishing industry. And we kind of left off right around the end of the 19th century with the first golden age of children's literature kind of on our horizon. Um, and this is also the time period in which we start to see the emergence of the picture book. Right. Um, so, Barbara Bader, who's a children's literature scholar, um, has a very, very comprehensive book published in the mid-1970s. I read the whole thing. It was very thick. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. It's, it's titled American Picture Books from Noah's Ark to the Beast Within, uh, which are both titles of books. Um, and it details the history and innovations happening in children's publishing across the late 19th century and up to her present day, so up into the mid-1970s. And so I'm going to be pulling really heavily from her work to lay out what was going on in this period. So in addition to Newberry, you might remember us talking about the Caldecott Medal way back in our episode on how to find books. This medal is named for Randolph Caldecott, who was an illustrator at the end of the 19th century. Funny fact, when I do the transcripts for this, it cannot transcribe Caldecott. I get all kinds of things with the word cut in it. Whoa. <laughs> and it's very funny Weird. <laughs> Um, so the UK's comparable medal is named for Kate Greenaway, who was also illustrating at the same time. Curiously, they were both British, and I don't really know why we got Caldecott and they got Greenaway, but that's how it, how it fell out. 
Um, so according to Bader, the biggest innovation of this time period in children's books was that they became artistic. Um, remember I described, and we have the picture in the episode notes, uh, for that episode, that page out of, um, of the Newberry book. It's the one with the... With the riddle? Yes. Oh my God. <laughs> yes, I remember. <laughs> so that's what Newberry's illustrations looked like, and that they were limited by the technology of the day, right? Um... They were innovative for their time, for sure, but they were still pretty stagnant. And as print technology improved, so did the ability to make picture books that might actually really draw in their audience. And I can put some examples of the major illustrators of the time on the episode page for this episode, so you can compare them to that Newberry illustration. I can show you some Greenaway and some Caldecott and and what those looked like. That's a good idea. Yeah. So Edmund Evans, a publisher in the late 1800s, started designing what he called children's toy books, as um, they were called, and uh, they were designed as a package. He kept an eye toward being able to mass print them, and he started from the idea that the book would be a whole package with the text and the illustrations designed together. And this is the real start of what we now recognize as the children's publishing industry. Also around this time, um, it was European books that were being imported over to the U.S., particularly British books. We talked about that a little bit in the last episode. Um, But there were also plenty coming from France and even some from Germany, both of which would have been translated. But American publishing did not keep up in terms of quality, both art and print quality. And there were still American books being made, but they were generally just not as popular. So... Interestingly, we also see some uh, comic-style illustrations and stories around this time. Um, I always think here about Max und Moritz, which is a German book about two trickster boys. Um, Bader talks about this one in her book, and in my own family, we had copies of it in both English and German um, when I was growing up. Um, and I will put some pictures of that in the um in the show notes for this episode too so you can kind of see what what those looked like at the time yeah i had never heard of or seen that book before okay so that was neat. it it's i mean it's funny i lo- was looking at it today and i was showing it to you and i realized it's blurbed on the back by maurice sendak and edward gory yeah. which i was very surprised about <laughs> big names yeah um but in general there was a distaste for stories that resembled humorous comics Yeah. And, you know, we were kind of thinking about this and sort of wondering if this is because, you know, this we're we're still coming out of sort of a big cultural pull here in the later 1800s. The approach to raising children was still very heavily informed by the church and learning was viewed predominantly as a discipline rather than something that should be fun. And that that idea kind of clung on for a long time. I mean, I think we still sort of see it. Yes, absolutely. As we'll see in all of this, these debates rage on. <laughs> yes. I mean, how many of us have been told, you know, stop laughing, you're in a classroom yeah. <laughs> or something similar? Exactly. So this era also saw the rise of children's services in libraries. There were libraries they um, had not generally catered to children before, um, but we start seeing librarians advocating for higher quality materials for children and also for spaces within the library that belonged to children. And these librarians also created lists of books, and it's the precursors of both the Horn Book, which is the, uh, excuse me, the Journal of Children's Literature that's still around today, and also the Caldecott and Greenaway Medals. 
Um, but we also see a lot more virulent gatekeeping for what children, quote unquote, should be reading. And not surprising in this era of strict moral attitudes, heading out of the Victorian era and into the Gilded Age, and this distaste for comics and any books with more vulgar humor like Mox and Moritz, they get a frown from the children's librarians, too. But joke's on them, because that book is still around. (laughs) (laughs) And how many of those librarians are? (laughs) None. (laughs) What if they were? That would be scary. Oh, boy. So now we move into the era between the two world wars. You know, this the stuff that we've been talking about for the last few minutes really was like the end of the 19th century into the to the 20th century into that World War One era and then in between the two world wars. And here we continue to see the rise in children's librarianship and publishers in America be. Uh, begin to take note, and they start adding departments to their publishing houses focused exclusively on content for children. And bookstores also create lavish children's departments. Um, Picture books are still kind of rare, and illustrated books, those books where the pictures are large plates separate from the text, are very de rigueur. Um, A couple of things happen in this era. First, printing technology continues to improve uh, with four-color printing being used for illustrations. And the Happy Hour series put out by Macmillan, a publishing name that you might be familiar with, um, at the urging of Jersey City Printing Company, um, comes out. And these are essentially the precursors to the little golden books. That's so cool. Yeah. Um, they're designed as a whole package. Again, this idea of designing it as a whole package. Again, it's not a new concept, but it still was not that widely done up until this point. Um, and they have beautiful full-color illustrations printed with the latest print technology, and they're cheap. They're 50 cents in the 1920s, and they reduced them to 25 cents during the Depression. And this makes them a lot more accessible for families who want to bring books into the home on more than just special occasions. Because those um, illustrated books were really like, you might get one for a birthday, you might get one for Christmas. You didn't have books in homes in the way that we have books in homes today. Right. Such a cheap and really appealing kind of a book um, would sort of make it possible to actually start a little collection. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so during this time, we start to see authors and illustrators in large numbers that have stood the test of time. That's when we really start seeing some of these names that we recognize today, and they're still in print. So people like Wanda Gogg, um, Lois Lenski, yay, Yay. shout out, (laughs) and the haters who want to call the cut. They're still around. You may not necessarily be as familiar with their work, but... Well, I would imagine, you know, especially for a lot of our listeners, that the names might not stand out, but we could probably recognize their illustrations if we saw them. Yeah, Wanda Gaga's um, Millions of Cats, mm-hmm. which I always found to be a really creepy story, personally. But I loved it as a kid and then read it in, when I had my second grade classroom and was like, this is, I'm not reading this anymore. <laughs> It's very dark. Yeah, it takes a weird turn. (laughs) She has another one, I think, called the ABC Bunny, which has sort of like moody illustrations, um, but it's just an ABC book, so it's not not creepy. It's just sort of fun illustrations. Yeah. So I think the longstanding nature of some of the books uh, of this time is at least in part due to the fact that general society was learning more about overall child development and continuing to get better at appealing to kids in different stages of childhood rather than simply assuming kids would enjoy a watered-down adult story. Right. And we saw those watered-down adult stories um, earlier on in the publishing industry, and they were not very popular. No. (laughs) Shocker. Yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, and so it's during this time that Freud's psychosexual stages of development and then shortly after Eric Erickson's psychosocial stages continued to spread uh, in sort of popularity throughout the Western world. Um, <clears throat> Don't don't be alarmed. Freud called them psychosexual stages. They're not as sexual in nature as a lot of popular culture makes them. But that's a whole different podcast about those <laughs> stages. <laughs> yes, it is. And the research that goes into it. But just understand that both Freud and Erickson really heavily contributed to the idea that there are different stages of development that pretty much all kids go through. And they're different from the stages before and after. Which seems sort of surprising to think that it wasn't that long ago that we didn't think of development going through stages. Exactly. Exactly. Um, And both of those approaches emphasized the different needs and the internal processes that occur at different times throughout child development. Um, And in addition, behaviorism is still widely held as a rival approach to Freud and Erickson. Um, Although the psychosocial stages are not really antithetical to behaviorism, it's funny that these these theories were sort of regarded as in tension with each other, but they're not um, opposites of each other. Right. They just focus on different aspects. Behaviorism simply focuses on observable behavior and what factors affect that behavior, while Freud and Erickson focused on internal thought processes, unconscious thought, and resolving inner conflict. Which, of course, no child is completely internal or completely external. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> Um, So as more questions are being asked surrounding what drives children at different stages and the nature and cause of those stages is widely disputed, we can at least see that the idea that children do move through through different stages is a pretty universal belief by this time. So it makes sense that books that speak to childhood experiences and which perhaps include an understanding of that child's perspective might be different from that of an adult and from that of other children, those books would become popular and remain popular for a long time. Yeah, they're finally hitting their target audience. Hey, (laughs) what a concept. (laughs) So another trend that we see that unfortunately persists into today is the publication about children in other countries written by white Americans. Oh, yeah. And not that it's not unfortunate that we have books published about children living in other places. It's sort of the paternalistic racist stuff that you start seeing. and, And unfortunately, that continues to persist in those books. Yeah. So during the later 1920s and into the 1930s and 40s and even into the 50s, we see the American publishing industry importing artists and works from Europe, people writing and illustrating their own cultures like the Dolaires, illustrating about Norway. Um, But this authenticity in own voices really doesn't hold up with non-European places. There were a number of books about Asian cultures, South American cultures, African children, and even some about Pacific Islanders, which sounds good, right? Like diversity in publishing. But the bulk of these stories were written by Americans, many of whom lived or traveled in those places. So that's not a terrible thing. Um, But they still managed to be deeply paternalistic. And some of them are deeply, deeply racist. Yeah. Um, And unfortunately, some of them won medals. There's a couple of... um, Books about uh, Chinese children that won the Caldecott pretty early on that are a little cringy now. We had some in my classroom when I first uh, moved into that classroom, and they mysteriously disappeared over time. Oh, I wonder what happened to them. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Woman. Oh, yeah. Blair Lent. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was like late 70s, I think, and Mm. then Tiki Tiki Tembo. Mm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yep. 
So, you know, I was looking into this and honestly, to to have a deep understanding of, you know, these sort of converging phenomena would require a lot more research. Um, but I've got some ideas about what drove this. I have some hypotheses that are really just sort of based on what I do know about our history as a country. Um, so at this time, around the Second World War, there was a huge upsurge in patriotism, of course. Yep. Um, and that is often accompanied by propaganda. Yep. And at the same time, the 30 years prior to this had been spent colonizing territories such as Guam, American Samoa, and the Virgin Islands. So you've got a larger interest in those places right. for Americans. Um, plus, the country has just been engaged in a global conflict on a very rare scale, bringing more focus to other places involved in that conflict. And then on top of that, the increasing middle class and improved air travel is creating more opportunities for Americans to visit places around the globe. So you have those more global travelers. Mm -hmm. And as you said, the rise of fascism and the antagonism America felt toward many places in Europe meant that our attention was drawn elsewhere. So one hypothesis is that, you know, these are some of the factors that led to an increased interest in books about such far-flung places. And then in addition to that, such conflicts and colonization might have led to an increase in immigration mm. of people from these quote-unquote exotic places to the U.S. So more white Americans who are still staying at home are also now encountering folks from lots of different cultures. So the combination of increased exposure to various cultures around the world and the exotification of such cultures driven by pa patriotic propaganda could have factored into a rise in appetite for books that feature such, quote, foreign people and places in a manner that maintained a sense of comfort for many white Americans. And of course, we know how racist the publication industry is. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> there was no way they were going to publish books by authors who were actually members of those cultures when white authors want to write about them, too. The impulse was good, but the uh, the follow through was yeah. predictable, but also not good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like, oh, you're, you're pointing down the right road. Now put more than a toe on it, please. Yeah. <laughs> um, and if you don't know how racist the publication industry is, go listen to our episode about it. Yeah. We break down in some statistics about the publication industry that are disheartening yeah. yeah i i believe you're i believe what you said was that it wasn't surprising but it was disappointing <laughs> yeah exactly and then finally this era also saw the rise of the progressive education movement which we'll discuss in more detail in a moment but one of the core tenets of that movement is respect for diversity so while this phrase means something a little bit different nowadays it likely opened up a demand for books featuring a wider range of characters and settings than had previously existed that makes sense yeah i mean there's always going to be a lot of factors that go into these into these decisions and these the way things play out but yeah i think that all sounds in line and you know that that topic of like that rise in you know more i guess the beginning of a more diverse set of children's books honestly that could be the topic of a master's thesis yes <laughs> you know so our few weeks of research i call know, dibs <laughs> it's all yours <laughs> okay so in 1933, we get one of the first instances of a book being written by an author with the intent of being illustrated by another. So you have these two artists that are already well established in the publishing industry, but they do two different things. And this is The Story About Ping by Marjorie Flack and Kurt Wise. I think that's how you say his last name. Um, this is one of those books that's a little unfortunate in its depiction of, it's not the worst of, of the worst, but it's also like, 
it it has a paternalistic feel to it. Sure. But it is also still in print. Um, and this model for creating books, which we talked about in our episode about picture books, where you have the two, the artist, the illustrator, and the writer as artist, um, opens the field to authors and artists who want to only do one aspect of picture book making and not the other. So you don't have to be doing the whole thing. Yeah, I would imagine this led to more opportunities to participate in the book and publishing industry. Um, And I wonder if this led to not only more stories being told, but also a wider variety of stories being told, because now there's opportunities for authors to share their stories without having to learn how to illustrate. And there are illustrators who would have had to find a different venue to share their art, um, but they can enrich someone else's story. Yeah, and actually, I... I will note one of the things that I sort of learned from from doing all this research, too, is that illustrating for publication is a different animal than just doing drawing or painting. Um, You have to think about how the colors are going to be divided out with this four-color printing, um, separating out the colors, making sure that you're getting the right colors when they print. So there's a lot of technical aspects that go into book illustration. I think less so now because the technology is more digital and whatnot, but back in this era and, you know, even into the like 80s and 90s, it was not as, it was not, um, it was a much more complex process. And so if you were also writing and then you had to illustrate your own book, you had to, there was like a whole skill set, skill set that had to come with that. Yeah, that's, that's intense. Yeah. So now you may have noticed that the books and trends we've talked about so far are really more about children five and older, because remember we talked about picture books, and picture books are really intended as a shared reading experience, but they're also still for slightly older children. So what about those under fives? The 1920s and 30s saw the start of more research into very young children, and preschools began to pop up, and kindergartens were becoming more common. Um, This also meant a demand and interest in books for these younger children. As we've mentioned before, young children have a harder time following stories, both because sequence isn't their strong suit and because of short attention spans. And anyone who has tried reading a too long picture book to their toddler knows exactly what I am talking about. Oh, yes. So this audience needed books that showed the children the world around them with simple stories and no real plot at all. Like they didn't have to have a ton of plot or any. Um, Lois Linsky. Yay. Yay. Uh, began her work as a children's book author illustrator during this time and she made book after book that was suitable and loved by very young children and again many of these are still in print they are um and the trim size of those also helped make them more appealing because they were small and they were just right for little hands i still have very fond memories of some of those i bet Also around this time, again, the late 1920s and into the 30s, there was the progressive education movement, which Alexis brought up. And so let's pause for a moment and we'll discuss what that is now. Yeah. So the progressive education movement began in the late 1800s and became more widespread in the early 1900s. Up until and even during this time, mainstream American education was focused on creating uniformity among students, as well as creating dutiful workers for industry and capitalism. That is not just my opinion, by the way. That was the (laughs) stated goal. (laughs) However, the early 1900s saw two large movements that made some folks question these goals. 
first. America saw some of the first mega rich millionaires, the first billionaire in Rockefeller in 1916, and some swiftly growing corporations. This was troubling enough to Americans at the time that three major antitrust acts were passed. Second, fascism was on the rise in Europe, and the mindless following of authority was suddenly not as appealing as it once was. So this idea of just feeding kids into this machine to fuel industry and capitalism and be sort of mindlessly uniform suddenly lost a little bit of its appeal, (laughs) weirdly. (laughs) Um, So in response, the progressive education movement came about, spearheaded by John Dewey of all people. Uh, this movement was was not a singular style or method of teaching, but rather a general approach which centered, quote, respect for diversity and, quote, critical, socially engaged intelligence. So the goal now was to make schools effective agencies of a democratic society and to make education, including higher education, available to the masses rather than just universities for the rich and vocational schools for everyone else. As part of the progressive education movement in elementary and high schools, new emphasis was placed on such skills as critical thinking, community engagement, economics and politics, as well as social emotional skills and the arts. A new emphasis on child-centered learning also came about as part of this movement. So um, progressive education fell out of favor during the 1950s as the Cold War approached. So that sort of big push towards weight Maybe this whole idea of all being the same and just creating workers for the workforce isn't such a great idea. Sort of it peaked and then it waned again. Um, Although we still see plenty of echoes of it in our educational system now. Right. So even though it, it fell out of popularity in the middle of the 20th century, it really heavily informed later educational reform movements from the 60s and 70s and even into the 21st century. Yeah. It makes sense, then, that a movement aimed toward creating informed democratic citizens and a more diverse global knowledge base led to a boom in informational texts for children, as well as what we might now call historical fiction or fictionalization of historical stories. So we see books like The Story of Ancient Civilization or The Story of the Middle Ages. Um, which are both real books. (laughs) It also led to a debate about whether children should be reading stories with fantasy and imagination or realistic books with facts and truth. And this is not the first time this debate has happened, and it continues today. You need look no further than Montessori purists versus Waldorf educators. But um, it's interesting to see it playing out in the publishing industry. Yeah, for sure. So toward the end of the 1930s, a new publisher emerged, um, and they brought along a new name that should be very familiar to most of us. That would be Margaret Wise Brown. Yes. The new publisher, um, Scott, noted a lack of books for very young children. And if you've listened to our early episodes about how reading develops as a process for children, you know that picture books, like I was saying, are designed to be read to children, but many, particularly during this era, were suited to those older, five and older kiddos, um, kids who had a bit longer of an attention span and a more developed vocabulary. Yeah. But there was this need for books that would appeal to the two, three, and four-year-olds, the kids that are going into those kindergartens and preschools that are popping up. So Scott Publishing was connected to several progressive schools in New York, most notably the Bank Street School, which is still around. Um, And with their authors, especially with Margaret Wise Brown, they took book manuscripts 
to the preschool classrooms and they tested them out. They would use story time to determine appeal and take suggestions to change the plot. And they would also then test out the stories with different ages to determine the age range suitability. And once they had the story in hand, they would then come back with the artwork and go through the same process. That is so cool. Yeah. And I'm going to actually interject here just a little bit to add to this. So what you just described um, is a phenomenon that became more common during this era, both because of the boom in understanding child development and the progressive education movement, and that is educational experimentation. So remember, during this time, there are two main branches of thought still, the psychoanalytical branch that focuses on unconscious thought and the behaviorist branch that focuses on behavior. And so during this time, scientists studying child development, especially those in the behaviorist camps, would often perform experiments on young children in daycares, schools, and even at home. <laughs> this is not as scary as it sounds. <laughs> so the we we hear experiment, right? And we think, oh my God, scalpels. <laughs> Dr. Frankenstein. Right, exactly. Dr. Moreau. No, this, this is not that kind of experiment. It would just involve introducing an object or a concept and then observing what the kids did with that. Um, the progressive education movement was also all about experimentation. They would try out all kinds of books, activities, concepts, and even environments to try to find the ideal way to engage students and expose them in a more well-rounded education. So taking a book manuscript to a progressive school and testing it out on the kids was actually a pretty common practice and honestly, a pretty good idea in general. I mean, I used to read things to the kids, and they would have lots of notes on how to improve all kinds of books and activities. This sounds like the guy that invented kindergarten, Froebel, mm. and he had like these specific activities. Honestly, it sounds like Montessori, too, where they both of them developed very specific activities and materials to be used in classrooms with specific ages yeah. of children, and they, they did a lot of experimentation to find what worked. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Interjection over. <laughs> So now most of us know Margaret Wise Brown from Goodnight Moon, um, the book I never want to read again, <laughs> and also maybe The Runaway Bunny, which I, I seem to like more. I have fond memories of that one. Yeah. A lot of us probably do. Um, these are her most famous works, for sure. But Brown wrote a lot of other books, a lot, a lot, many of which are still in print. Um, maybe you've heard of The Noisy Book, The Little Fur Family, and The Important Book. We used the important book in my second grade classroom a lot. Yeah. That's a, I, the format of that one is really cool. Mm -hmm. It's great for writing. Exactly. Um, we also start to see some names of authors and artists that have endured through the decades, including Esfer Slobodkina, who did um, cats, Caps for Sale. Excuse me. Oh, yeah. Um, Clement Hurd um, and Leonard Weisgard, both of whom are illustrators um, uh, for Margaret Wise Brown books, other things as well. Mm. Um, and then during this time, we see books coming out that are written with repetitive and rhythmic wording and generally simpler text. And thinking back to our discussion in early episodes of what children in the toddler and preschool years are capable of, these books were designed to be memorized by the child so they could feel like they were reading. And topics also tended to stay close to the young child's world, as with the noisy book, which is like different sounds that this dog hears. Um, you know, he's just sitting in his parlor, his living room, listening. Um, and they're all things that children would have been familiar with, or even Goodnight Moon, obviously, right? Um, and pictures were bright and engaging. And the publisher, Scott, also got a lot of artists who worked in abstract art to do the illustrations. That's really cool. Yeah. Um, 
and these these are also you know you mentioned books with little to no plot these really fill that that niche there like thinking back to goodnight moon yeah it's just a kid sitting in their room saying goodnight to all the objects they see around them you don't have to follow along with events that are happening yeah or you get very very simple plots like um the carrot seed by crockett johnson where it's just the little boy plants the seed and it over a course of a few pages his family's like it's not gonna grow and then it grows exactly (laughs) and that's it So one annoying trend I would like to note that happens with books from this era, especially if you go to look for any of these titles, um, you can find a lot of them today, but they have illustrations that have been redone. Um, At some point in their long popularity, publishers have taken the original illustrations and had someone new redo them. Um, This is particularly disappointing to me for the books that were tested out on Children in the Bank Street School. And others, too, because a lot of them are very, I mean, they were designed together yeah. and to be used together. Um, and that, you know, it was very intentional the way they were designed and aimed at their audience. And so I I often feel like a lot of the new illustrations don't hit the mark. A lot of them tend to, to my eyes, I don't know, they're like more saccharine. You know, and I will note that kids notice that kind of thing, too, Um we would have discussions in my second grade classroom. So these are seven year olds. They're maybe a little bit older, but you know, we would read a book or we would look at a book that had won a Caldecott honor or something. And we would do a little book critique. And there were moments where the kids would say either, Oh wow. Like the illustrations really made that book so much better. Or I feel like the illustrations don't really fit. And Mm -hmm. even seven year olds, like they articulating why would be challenging yes but they could say no it just doesn't seem to work yeah so during world war ii rations and austerity were making toys sparse um so parents started turning to books during this time also during this period the early to mid 1940s color printing technology was improving as it just continued to do throughout the 20th century Um, And as noted, book publishers were turning to a younger preschool audience. And these three factors led to the introduction of the Little Golden Books in 1942. Um, Professionals were rather unimpressed with them. And by professionals, I mostly mean librarians. (laughs) (laughs) But parents liked them. (laughs) Their bright colors, uh, stapled bindings and cardboard covers made them enticing, and they were surprisingly durable. Oh, yeah. Which you probably know if you have little golden books in your house. Yep. Um, And the series has endured all these years, and some of the original set are still in print, like the pokey little puppy. That's really cool. Yeah. Um, Shorter stories made them a hit with younger kids, and the predictable text made it so that youngsters could read it to themselves after only a few readings from an adult. During this time, picture book publishing continued mostly as it had been. um, But in 1954, an article in Life magazine by John Hersey complained that books to help children learn to read were what he called, quote, pallid primers. Oh, boy. (laughs) So you're probably familiar with Dick and Jane. Oh, yeah. These are the types of books he was referring to, which he's not wrong. Mm hmm. This article was followed by a book that's still in print called Why Johnny Can't Read by Rudolph Flesh, I believe is his last name. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's actually surprisingly relevant to our podcast. Yeah. 
In the book, Flesh talks about schools teaching children to read using sight words, um, and he believed this was why children were not learning to read well. His solution was that they needed to focus on phonics, or as now we call them, decoding skills. Of course, nearly 70 years later, we know a lot more about how children learn to read, and we know that a mix of these two skill sets are essential for learning to read. Um, and you can definitely still find his book, and it has instructions for how to teach your child to read at home using phonics. So if that piques your interest, you can definitely look for it at your local library or online. Um, it should be pretty easy to get your hands on a copy. Yeah. But this book has one particular development that's also relevant to what we've been talking about. It spurred the author, Theodore Geisel, to write what we would call the very first easy readers. Mm -hmm. um, and the very first, of course, being The Cat in the Hat which was published in 1957, if you can believe that. In partnership with Houghton Mifflin, who's a textbook publisher, and Random House, who's just a regular publisher, um, Geisel wrote and illustrated The Cat in the Hat, as well as edited a handful of other, um, what they call their series, beginning books. Um, the series was written, quote, only with words which young children are learning to read in first grade at school, end quote which means they drew from a list of sight words and easily sounded out words, um, and they were intended as supplementary material to, to the learning to read process, as they still are today. Um, later that year, 1957, Harper, the publisher Harper, started the I Can Read series, and this ser that series is also still around today. Oh, yeah. Um, these were initiated by the book Little Bear, which is still in print. It was written by Elsa Minerick Homeland and illustrated by Maurice Sendak. Um, I, I highly recommend those. I think they're very funny. I love the Little Bear. Yeah. <laughs> As we noted when talking about easy readers, the I Can Read series skewed slightly older than the beginning books. There's already that sort of differentiation yeah. in, in um, difficulty. Um, but they are still those supplemental let's learn to read let's really focus on these skills yeah. um by the 1960s there was a trend toward cognitive learning and also also visual literacy as preparation for reading literacy and there was a boom in picture book publishing of wordless or nearly wordless picture books on into the 1970s, we see printing technology still significantly improved and cheaper and a well-established children's publishing industry. I found an article written in 1971 by Virginia Haviland, who was, amongst many things, a children's book specialist for the Library of Congress, and the article was titled, A Second Golden Age in a Time of Flood? <laughs> what a title. I know. And basically what she says is that some people, notably John Rowe Townsend, whose work I used the last in the last episode to talk about John Newberry, believe that there was a second golden age of children's literature that began post-World War II and carried into the early 70s. Haviland ultimately agrees, but she waffles a bit because she's concerned with the quality and whether or not books will last. <laughs> During this time, she notes the quantity of books for children picks up considerably. There's now federal money available to fund schools and libraries, which contributes to the demand. The publishing industry is now looking at marketing more seriously and growing how it markets books. They establish more awards and festivals and prizes. That's when you see some of these ALA awards coming into yeah. being. And the study of children's books becomes a thing during this time period. Um, Haviland also notes that there is better communication between American publishing and international publishing, which opens the market to more books from abroad. That's interesting. Yeah. 
But Haviland is sort of against quantity. She wants quality. Ah, the age-old debate. <laughs> I know. Which I hope we've impressed on you is actually something that's pretty subjective. Yeah. In 2022, Haviland's staunch position about quality books being the only ones that are worthy and will remain popular seems pretty silly. Um, and there are a lot of books from that era that have remained in print over the intervening 50 years. Um, I know for us, we're more interested in getting books in kids' hands, no matter what they like reading. So an increase in quantity is going to mean more books available to pique kids' interest, like Dickinson talks about in his defensive rubbish. Yes. I always think about that student of mine who was just dying to read Captain Underpants, of all things, Yep, and had been told by a previous teacher he couldn't because they weren't, quote, good books. <laughs> and guess what? He never read anything else. <laughs> <laughs> That's all he wanted to read. But once he did, he read everything in my classroom. He would be how old now? Oh, God, high school. I bet he's probably not still reading Captain Underpants. No, exactly. <laughs> but it, that was his gateway in. I know. Like, <laughs> It's okay, everybody. Calm down. Yeah. Your yeah. kids will not read Captain Underpants forever. Exactly. Um, interesting. The Interestingly, the last third or so of Havlin's article brings back that age-old debate of what kind of content can children handle? Um, is it too much to reflect life as it is to children or is it not? Um, I was pretty surprised and heartened by the fact that she added a lot more nuance to the argument than I had seen to this prior. Um, and she agrees that children can handle hard subjects. She also says, quote, we cannot, therefore, make sweeping generalizations about relevance or prescribe problem literature for the child, but only insist on honesty and compassion and a show of some degree of faith and hope in the resolution of the human plight. In library service, we are aiming, as never before, to recognize differences in cultural background, reading readiness, and attitude to life, endeavoring to make reading a part of all young lives through a universal library service with book a book production that attempts to meet the needs of every socioeconomic area, end quote. So she sort of still comes down on the side of if you give them the hard stuff, make sure good still comes out triumphant, but the debate keeps on. Yeah, you know, and I, I found it a bit surprising and, and definitely heartening to notice her recognizing that children's life experiences might differ with culture and background. Yeah. As I think we've pointed out before, something that might seem shocking to one child might just be part of life for another child, depending on how society treats that child's community. So amongst many other reasons we've already laid out, limiting children's access to certain books simply because one adult or group of adults deems them, quote, too difficult to handle, can result in many children missing out on seeing their own experiences reflected in the books that they read. I will say Barbara Brader b brought up a couple of... Um titles of books that of like quote-unquote problem books books that like addressed societal problems and they sounded absolutely awful oh no and not not surprising to anybody i'm sure but they're not in print anymore that's so funny <laughs> but yeah <laughs> i don't think those are quite the books that um that any of these people would have approved of. right <laughs> they weren't they weren't quality enough and you know time told sure so from here in the 1970s on out, the tide of books published just keeps rising. Um, I didn't do much research into the more recent publishing simply because once we hit the 70s and 80s, what we think of as the children's publishing industry has become very well established and it's very recognizable to our 21st century eyes. Printing technology does continue to improve and becomes cheaper and cheaper. 
Um, more books are published. All the major publishing houses have a children's division by this point. Education and libraries continue to create a high demand. Um, and consumer culture really takes off. And paired with cheaper books, more people want and can afford to purchase books for their kids. Yeah, that increase in demand for children's books is likely due, likely due to a number of factors, um, but not least of which is pressure from education. Mm -hmm. As educational standards became more rigorous and less developmentally reasonable, parents have been pressured more and more to not only make sure their kids are, quote, ready for school before even attending kindergarten, but also to support and supplement their education at home. The later half of the 20th century saw a lot more scientific research and study focused on the way kids learn to read. This is when the debate between whole word or whole language methods mm -hmm. and phonics really began to rage, as you talked about. Yep. Um, books championing one approach or the other were published in the 60s and 70s. And if you became bestsellers, like um, uh, the one you mentioned, uh, Why Johnny Can't Why Johnny Read. Why Johnny Can't Read, yep. Indicating that parents were very interested in understanding how their children learn to read. And with more widespread knowledge about how kids read, more parents may have felt empowered to support their children's reading at home. And plus, in the other direction, the rise in publishing of engaging but simple books aimed at kids likely also gave parents an opportunity to more closely observe their children's reading growth at home. Yeah, that's a really good point that suddenly having these tools in your home gives you a lot more insight into what's going on and gives you the ability to engage in that process more. Absolutely. And then, in addition, the middle of the 20th century saw a growing fear in the government that Americans were falling behind European countries in our reading, and we haven't really calmed down about kids' education and testing since then. <laughs> Great. Um, so recently, there's been a rise in YA, young adult literature, and its differentiation from adult and middle grade books, middle grade books being those ones that you think of traditionally, Sounder, Where the Red Fern Grows, um, those would be middle grade books. Um and there's been a boom in nonfiction for kids that actually interesting and are actually interesting and well produced. <laughs> Yay! Because <laughs> some of the old nonfiction is like a real snooze fest. <laughs> um, recent years have seen at least a conversation about the need for more diversity, both in books and the industry that makes them. Although remember our stats from episode five shown that that hasn't really come to fruition even though they're talking about it <laughs> um and there are now ebooks and a, a lot more audiobooks but for the most part by the mid-1970s the publishing landscape looks familiar sure cool yeah well that was quite a journey it was <laughs> hopefully that was interesting i it was definitely interesting to research yeah same um and it was interesting for me to read what you had come up with as we were working on the script together and and learn from that so yeah it was really cool same for me too yeah On our way out of this episode, should yeah. we? I guess we should remind folks that we have a Patreon. Um, we will be, we're going to talk about very briefly what our next seasons will look like and sort of when to expect those. But between now and the time that our next season starts, we're hoping to record a few bonus episodes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so if you sign up at our Patreon, you should be able to get those there. Yes. One of them might uh, come with a video as well. Um, our goofy episode, we yes. plan to, to hopefully absolutely have video as well as audio so you can see the <laughs> mess <laughs> as well as hear it. We record in my children's bedroom because it's like the least echoey room in the house. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, that wasn't the mess I was referring to. Oh. <laughs> it's the one I thought of. <laughs> I was referring to the combination of adult beverages and children's literature <laughs> in a children's bedroom yes 
Um, so yeah, keep an eye on our Patreon. Keep an eye on our social media. We'll announce when we put things up on Patreon up there. And Patreon is, um, I've had a hard time finding it, but we have it linked. It's linked in the show notes. It's yeah. linked on the blog page that has show notes. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. It, we're, we're just, if you go on Patreon and search at home librarian pod, all one word, no uppercase, it should come up. But yeah, it's linked there. It's, it's one, it's like the lowest tier that I could make it. <laughs> yeah, it's like a dollar yeah. or something. Yeah. Um, we're not trying to like bar people from getting into it we're just yeah and we're not trying to make money off of this we're just trying to you know <laughs> you gotta work a little hard if you want to see us yeah drink adult beverages and read children's books exactly <laughs> exactly so keep an eye there um thank you for sticking with us for these 10 episodes yeah hopefully they were helpful yeah or you know maybe sparked your own interest in learning more about an aspect of this um, or make you feel supported if you're trying to, like, homeschool your kids and you didn't really know what to expect or look for. Yeah. Or maybe give you some language to use to discuss in your next parent conference if your kids are in school. Yeah. Um, we still have, you know, ways to contact us if you want to ask a question about anything we've covered or might cover in the future. Or if you have book recommendations. We love book recommendations. That yeah. That our way. Um, yeah, if you come across a great series that your kid has connected with or that you really enjoyed reading with your kid or something, let us know. Yeah, we'd love to hear that. We'd love to, one of our bonus episodes that we would like to do is doing more book recommendations yeah. for folks. So if you if you have things that you want us to shout out, let us know. Let's do it. Um, and then so next season, which will drop sometime next year, we'll cover writing and spelling. Yes. Uh, because that is closely tied to the reading process. And in my experience as a teacher, one of the most challenging aspects for kids, teachers, and parents. I still find spelling challenging. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and even just the writing process. How do I get my kid to, to take that leap from words in their brain to words on a page? That's tough. Yeah. Um, and then in future seasons after that, we want to cover all kinds of topics. We're looking at math. We're looking at um, social emotional learning and play. Play especially. Yeah. We're looking at science, social studies, all kinds of stuff. So if you if there's something you want us to cover, let us shoot know. us an email or something and let us know. Yeah. We'd love that. So I just want to end with a little quote from E.B. White, who's the author of Charlotte's Web. Um, and it is... Anyone who writes down to children is simply wasting his time. You have to write up, not down. Children are demanding. They are the most attentive, curious, eager, observant, sensitive, quick, and generally congenial readers on earth. They accept almost without question anything you present them with, as long as it is presented honestly, fearlessly, and clearly. I handed them, against the advice of experts, a mouse boy. And they accepted it without a quiver. In Charlotte's Web, I gave them a literate spider and they took that. I and love so I, that. I feel like that's a good sentiment to carry forward into working on reading with your children. Well said, E.B. White. Yeah. Well said. <laughs>